The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm Thomas Nagley. I'm here with Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V, and he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And you? Just the same, Father. Good to see you. You too. Father, uh, prayer request tonight before we get into our topics? Oh, yes. Well, there are always plenty of them. Please pray for Nancy and, uh, and Lori are recovering, and uh, we pray. And uh, please pray for their uh, their cousin, okay, uh, Monsignor, who's up in years and has cancer now. So, and uh, also, of course, I ask your prayers for all those who are ill. Um, the continued prayers for them all. I can't name everyone. Um, you pray for those who are on the Immaculate Conception, the Immaculate Conception, and the Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer list, and you're pretty well covered. I, I think. Uh, uh, large section of humanity looking for prayers. So please keep all in your prayers. And of course, please continue to pray for our country and pray for all those in the world who are suffering, um, especially for sinners who are in danger of losing their souls and going to hell. Our Lady, our Blessed Mother appeared to the children of Fatima and asked their prayers particularly for those who were in danger of going to hell. And the children made um, heroic sacrifices, even as little ones, to save the souls who were bound for hell uh, because of their sins, asking God's grace to convert them and uh, prevent them from being lost. You know? mm -hmm. And so uh, following the words of Our Lady at Fatima, we too should be concerned about that and pray for the uh, those going to hell. In the rosary, pray for those who are in purgatory, as you know. Uh, we have, but we need to pray for uh, the souls who are... Uh, we're in danger of being lost forever in the fires of hell. Okay. That includes a large number of people, some, many of them uh, leaders yeah. of nations, right? That's right. Okay, we will certainly do that. Thank you, Father. Um, Father, we wanted to uh, talk a little bit tonight um, about a, a topic that uh, I think many Catholics are rightly <laughs> concerned about um, today and, and somewhat following Francis's uh, Synod on Synodality, uh, as it's called. And uh, there's a very, um, <clears throat> I don't know what the word is, concerning, <laughs> maybe, a not very surprising interview, though, uh, that Francis, I guess, recently gave, uh, I understand, with an Argentinian news outlet. And um, he said uh, what uh, I think some should find some very striking things in that email, Father, um, or, or rather in that, in that interview. Um, just reading through some of the quotes um, from this recent interview from Francis, he says, uh, this, is, this is a quote, the, the church has to change. Um, he, uh, in so many words, says that the uh, post-Vatican II changes, they must continue. But another quote, he says, progress is necessary and the church has to incorporate these novelties with a serious conversation from a human point of view. Um, he talks about what kind of church is needed these days and he says, uh, since, this is a quote, since the Second Vatican Council, John XXIII had a very clear perception, the church has to change, he said. Uh, Pope, or, or rather, uh, he says, Paul VI agreed, just like the succeeding popes, the church had to change. Uh, but this change, it's not just about changing ways, it's about a change of growth in favor of the dignity of people. That's theological progression of moral theology and all the ecclesiastical sciences, even in the interpretation of scriptures that have progressed according to the feelings of the church. 
Um, he goes on and on, Father. He, he does mention tradition, um, but uh, his understanding of tradition is as follows. This is a, another quote from Francis. Uh, we all have traditions, a family. We were, born, we were all born within the culture of a country, a political culture. We all have a tradition for which we have to take responsibilities. Um, he goes on, Father, but um, I know you've read through some of this article. And, and reading through this, Father, um, I think the, the question is, uh, is there any question that Francis wants a new church uh, that is not the traditional Catholic church? I mean, it seems very thinly veiled that uh, he, uh, he does not like what the church previously taught. The church must change. We must have a new church with new doctrines. And the, cent the central focus of this is... Uh, human dignity. Uh, he talks about having a dialogue with all, with all peoples, um, incorporating all of these novelties. But Father, in reading through this, um, again, it's not really surprising, I don't think, to anyone who's been, been following uh, Francis and uh, modernism in general. But um, is there any question anymore, Father, that Francis is, he just he wants a new church that is not the Catholic Church? Well, Tom, there hasn't been a question for years now. I mean, the fact that there are people who just can't seem to face the fact uh, that Francis has just stated it bluntly, boldly, um, that this is exactly what his intention is, to create the new church of the third millennium, which is really not the church of pre-third millennium, not the church of the first or the second millennium, mm. but the church of the third millennium. Francis made it very, very clear in his first document on synodality back in 2013, 2014, when they first installed him, exactly what he was intending to do. And uh, it's, it's really, um, in a sense, um, well, it's frustrating a bit, but it's also, um, what should I say, uh, mystifying, I guess, that you have intelligent people who hear Francis say, I'm going to build a new church. And they look at each other and say, I wonder, I wonder if he means, he thinks he's perhaps going to consider the possibility of building a new church. <laughs> and they say, well, I don't know. I, mean, I wonder what he really intends. Uh, someone recently headlined an article at LifeSite News, Pope Francis suggests the Synod is a continuation of Vatican II. The church has to change. Now, that is a, not a novel idea, that the Vatican II is a continuation, is continued in the Synod, and the Synod is the continuation of Vatican II. Why is this news? It is not news. He's been saying this for years. We know exactly what he is intending to do. He's made it perfectly clear. And people have to, please, wake up and smell the incense and uh, realize that uh, what Francis has been saying all these years is exactly what he's doing. And they've got to stop, um, uh, what should I say, just kind of uh, interpreting his words to mean anything other than what he's actually saying he's doing. He is creating a new church. Uh, take the example of Eric Sammons, okay? Eric is a, a lawyer here locally in Cincinnati. And he's the editor of Crisis Magazine, okay? Uh, I don't know. I think he might have something to do with uh, 1 Peter 5 website, too. It seems to me there's some connection there <clears throat> now. But, but, you know, Eric Sammons got up at the Catholic Identity Conference in uh, Pittsburgh, right? Hosted by, uh, well, uh, Michael Matt, mm -hmm. and gave a talk. And that talk was later adapted into a, an article called uh, The New Religion of Synodality. The concept of synodality is threatening to replace Catholicism as the religion of the Catholic Church. Now, Eric Salmon says that, okay? It's there, black and white, headlining his article. So uh, the, the synodality that Francis is proposing here is actually creating a new religion, replacing the Catholic religion, right? And uh, this isn't going to be the new religion of the quote-unquote Catholic Church. So he sees that, okay? But then he asked the question, well, in LifeSite News, he's, he's on the air with uh, 
with uh, John Henry Weston, and it says that uh, Eric Sammons is reacting, notice reacting, not responding, reacting to the question of whether Francis is the Pope. I would hope he does more than just react to it. I, you'd think he would have a thoughtful response to it. But, you know, even after posing this idea that Francis is even now trying to substitute the Catholic faith and the Catholic religion with a new religion of synodality, which is not Catholicism. Still, Eric Sammons really has trouble with this question. Well, is, is he the Pope? I mean, is this man who is trying to replace the Catholic religion entirely with something new and different, which is not the Catholic religion, is he still the Pope? And he comes out on the side saying, well, probably safer course to say he is. And you ask, how can this be? I mean, how could otherwise intelligent people, um, first of all, not uh, face the reality and, and uh, dance around it in their minds and, and basically uh, avoid, avoid facing the reality of what Francis has said he's doing. And then when they actually acknowledge what he is doing, <clears throat> something as grave as substituting a false religion, the Catholic Church, um, then, you know, cannot draw the practical consequences that, you know, there's, there's a serious doubt about whether this man could really be the Pope if he's out, out trying to destroy the Catholic religion and uh, destroy the Catholic faith. I, I don't understand the blindness that is there. When Our Lady talked about uh, the diabolical disorientation that would follow, you know, it, it would follow the appearances of Fatima and be rife in our times. Uh, when Russia would spread her errors out the world, I, I don't think people thought that the diabolical disorientation would be within the church in the sense that you'd have Catholic people who have the Catholic faith, and I believe Eric Sammons has the Catholic faith, at least he, he has, if he continues to follow Francis, he might not have it for long, I don't know. I understand he's made comments about the papacy in the church that even actually um, support Francis's idea of the papacy, which is, I think, the death knell of the Catholic faith for conservative uh, Novus Ordo Catholics, New Order Catholics, and for traditional Catholics who still have the faith, are practicing the faith, but still actually are falling into the net of Francis's own maladjusted and misaligned and um, modernist concept of the papacy, that they, they actually are beginning to act, believe that Francis's notion of the papacy is the true Catholic notion of the papacy. They're losing the faith. Before our very eyes, they are losing the faith. You, you know something about that, don't you? <laughs> I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, based upon some things you mentioned earlier, uh, that you had seen an article by Eric Sammons about that very question, right? Mm -hmm. That where the true papacy is and where the true concept of the papacy is. Is it in Francis or is it in the church of the Middle Ages? Mm -hmm. he, he had a, uh, an article in, the, uh, in the, his crisis magazine that uh, I believe was titled How Pope Francis is Inadvertently uh, Developing the Doctrine on the Papacy. Um, He's inadvertently developing the doctrine of the papacy. Doctrine of the papacy yeah. In a good sense. Is that right? Uh, I believe so, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's Francis's great contribution then. Yeah. The man who's trying to introduce synodality, right? A false religion. Yeah. But he, he talks about that, um, the development of, of the, the papacy. And he, what does he say there? He says, uh, this development is, in fact, uh, it's the, the fundamental issue that ultimately led to the tragic schism between East and West. While the West expanded its understanding of the papacy, many in the East tended to minimize the role of the papacy more and more over time until it became nothing more than ceremonial, inconsistent with the actual authority given to Peter by our Lord. Uh, he says, yet once the East broke away from the West, there was no break, so to speak, on developments in the West when it came to papal doctrine. Over time, the increasing political role of the Pope was melded in many minds with his essential and theological spiritual role. He says, the church eventually became a, quote, top-down structure in which everything centered on Rome, and most problems, big and small, were referred to the papal office. This new understanding of the papacy was fundamentally different from the early church's understanding. For centuries, and even into the Middle Ages, how the church operated and the faith was lived was more bottom-up, 
one starts with the family, then the parish priest, then the diocesan bishop, and only then moves up the ranks, if necessary, to resolve issues. Now, these are not the words of Francis. These are the words of Eric Sammons right? on the papacy and why he actually thinks that Francis has helped us to basically return to the early days, yeah. the original understanding yeah. of the papacy, right? Yep. And um, because this is Francis's idea. Yeah. And now this is, this raises all kinds of red flags here, yeah. more than red flags. Um, he says that this new concept of the papacy developed basically after the Great Western Schism mm -hmm. in the West. Yeah. And it was not it was not the same concept of the papacy that the original church yeah. founded by Christ really had. Yep. It wasn't the papacy as Christ founded it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, but now Francis is helping us to rediscover the true notion of the papacy as it was originally established by Christ. Right? Yeah. That is shocking that it would come from the mouth of a man like Eric Sammons. And what that tells me is he's falling into the modernist net. That he too is thinking like a, a good modernist right there. And he's leading others into, into uh, the trap. And this is the problem, that those who follow Francis have to find a way to uh, accommodate him and his concepts of the papacy. Um, and in doing so, they, they are losing their faith. Mm -hmm. They are changing their understanding of the papacy to suit Francis. And uh, this is not the Catholic concept of the papacy. Mm -hmm. And it's provable. It's provable that this is not the Catholic. A top-down, the family, parish priest. This is, Fr this is Francis's concept of synodality. The bottom-up. This is the strange thing. Now look at that. He has an article here that is adapted from his speech at the Catholic Identity Conference in which he says that synodality is a new and a false religion mm -hmm. that Francis is using to substitute for the Catholic religion in the Catholic Church. Yeah. And here in that article, well, what is the date on that one? I'm not sure, Father, but I believe it was very rather recent. <clears throat> These two articles came out recently, out of the pen, out of the mind, out of the mouth of Sarah Sammons, mm -hmm. and they flatly contradict each other. Yeah. That Francis has the true idea of the bottom-up, right, authority of the church, yeah. and how the church proceeded, yeah. right? And that's synodality, really. Yeah. That's Francis's idea. And here, at the same time, Eric Sammons is saying that's a false non-Catholic concept that is being foisted on the church is a false religion. Yeah. So uh, I think Eric Sammons has to um, uh, decide whether he's prosecutor or defense <laughs> in this case. No. Um, and maybe he's both. I don't know. Yeah. That, that article was, was posted on, on October 9th, just a matter of days, I guess, after he gave that speech at the... It just Catholic days afterward. I mean, it, it makes you wonder how this is playing with people's minds and taking otherwise intelligent and rational people mm. and making them say such absurd things. Mm -hmm. uh, is Francis uh, actually uh, representing the true papacy as Christ established it and as it is stood by the church in the early days? Mm. Or is he, is this idea of synodality the coming, you know, the development of, yeah. of the faith and religion coming from the bottom up? Um, is that a false religion, yeah. uh, the same, uh, and the religion of a new church that Francis is establishing? Yeah. Well, I think uh, Mr. Sammons has to figure this out, and um, but um, I think he's probably confusing a lot of people. I'll tell you this, Tom. He says, "Well, you go back to the early church, and the early church really believed in Francis's papacy, right?" Not the medieval papacy that we grew up learning in our catechisms, because yeah. that was the false papacy. Yeah. Now we've got the true papacy that Francis is actually developing, or I should say, redeveloping in the church. That is bottom up. Is that is that the truth? No. It's not. You're telling me it's not true. No. Can you prove that it's not true? Yes. <laughs> you can prove it. How, prove, tell me how you know that what Mr. Sammons is saying here is, was the original concept of the papacy, which is Francis's concept of papacy, is not true. Well, when he talks about uh, uh, the uh, how, how things were eventually, it, the state of things eventually came to be that things were referred to Rome, uh, that's that's totally disprovable because there are so many early documents that you could point to of questions being referred to Rome. Uh, the answer, the authoritative, the definitive answer coming from Rome, from the Bishop of Rome. But he also talks about the 
top-down structure being an invention. Totally contrary. I think all you have to do is just read the gospel. <laughs> and, um, and the Acts of the Apostles. And the Acts of the Apostles. And it's very clear that a top-down structure is exactly what our Lord mm -hmm. um, intended when he mm -hmm. established the papacy, when he confirmed uh, Peter. Well, Tom, you're right. You're right. And, and if you thought longer, you'd remember specific examples of this, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. But uh, <clears throat> I mean, I mean, there are specific examples that we can raise historical examples that cannot be denied that show this is nonsense, what Eric Sammons is saying yeah. here with regard to Francis developing the papacy, uh, the, the concept uh, of, of the papacy yeah. uh, in the church and returning it to the original concept. I mean, open the, the chapter one of the Acts of the Apostles. Who stands up and says, we must choose someone to take Judas's place? St. Peter. St. Peter. St. Peter stands up. And he tells the other apostles, we must choose someone to take the place of the fallen Judas. And they all, they all, there's no discussion. And they all do it. Yeah. Peter said so. He knows this must be done. Who is guiding him? The Holy Ghost. Tradition is not just like kind of a shared culture that we've inherited. It's the work of the Holy Ghost. Who said that? Our Lord himself tells us that, right? Yeah. So this is nonsense. What, what Francis is saying is not only nonsense, it's blasphemy. Yeah. Uh, but that's nothing unusual with him. <clears throat> and it just amazes me that, that a man like Aaron, Eric Sammons could actually go along with these, these ideas. And, and after that, I mean, uh, chapter, chapter 2 of the Acts of the Apostles, the Holy Ghost comes, okay? The, the apostles, and, and there are a total of 120 people present at the time, okay? The apostles and the early church kind of gathered there, okay, come out into the streets of Jerusalem. And who is the one who gives the very first sermon? St. Peter. St. Peter. St. Peter gives the very first sermon. The most unlikely person, they think, after what had just happened a few weeks before. And now St. Peter is the one who gives the very first sermon about Jesus Christ being the Savior, the Messiah, and the... the and they put him to death, but it was all um, that his will to save and redeem us. If we repent, then we can find salvation. He quotes the prophet Joel. He alludes to, to King David, whose, whose tomb is right there, right? Uh, right? Right where he's standing. And uh, you can read that first sermon of St. Peter, of any of the apostles, given to those gathered in Pentecost in Jerusalem, on Pentecost in Jerusalem on that day, Pentecost Sunday. And it is a very, very powerful sermon. I mean, we know from the words of sacred scripture that there were 3,000 converts who entered the church there as a result of that. Turn the page to chapter 3 of the Acts of the Apostles. What do we find? We find St. Peter and the other apostles taking care of these converts and their needs. And St. Peter says, this is not right because we were set by God ordered by Christ to preach the gospel to begin with, and then, of course, to baptize, and, of course, to instruct in the, you know, moral life, Christian life. But he says that we're, we're set aside by Christ to come out to preach the gospel, and it is a diversion from our purpose to actually be involved in all this service. And so he said we must appoint seven deacons, and diakonoi means, diakonoi means servants, and uh, let them take care of the needs of these people. And that's where the diaconate came from. Who in, where did St. Peter get this idea? He was inspired by God. It was he, as he was inspired by the Holy Ghost to uh, find uh, Matthias to take the place of the fallen, the suicided Jewess, Ju uh, Judas, <laughs> as he was inspired to give the first sermon, uh, as he now was inspired to establish the order of deacons, the diaconate. And you keep reading the Acts of the Apostles, and in those earliest days, it was Peter giving the orders there. It was Peter who spoke first at the Council of Jerusalem about the question of the Judaizers and whether converts had to become Jews before they could become Christians. Right? He spoke first on that. Okay? He was the first to receive pagans directly into the church and make Christians out of them, to baptize a pagan as a Christian. He was the very first one to do so. Cornelius the centurion and his family received by St. Peter into the church a bold move 
which awakened a, a, res a lot of resistance among the, the Jewish converts um, who believed that uh, one would have to come through Jesus through Moses, period. And, but again, Peter's judgment prevailed because he was led by the Holy Ghost to do this. He was ordered to do this, and he did it. So we see this constantly in the Acts of the Apostles, Peter taking the initiative, being guided by the Holy Ghost, and the other apostles acknowledging that he had the authority to command this. You come to St. Clement of Rome when there was a trouble in Corinth. Um, it was appealed to Rome, and the Pope in Rome actually wrote to the Corinthians and instructed them, after admonishing what they were doing wrong, he instructed them on what they were doing to, uh, to make it right. And that letter of uh, Pope Clement I was actually read in the churches of Corinth for two centuries at least afterwards as a part of the instruction given. And it was from Rome. And, and you look, when the question came up of the Libolatici and those who had, um, had uh, gotten a, a, a forged document saying that they had uh, worshipped uh, the pagan idols so they could get away with that and not be punished, let's say under the reign of Datius, um, who was the one who settled that question but their responsibility for having gotten forged documents to say that they had worshipped the false gods when they hadn't, in fact, done so? What was their status in the church? That was appealed to Rome. And uh, this, the same with the question of baptism in non-Catholic sects. The Gnostics were very busy at that time, trying to, as it were, devour the newborn church. And uh, they had baptism, and there were people who were actually being deceived into following them. And when those people were not, were undeceived, as it were, and they realized this was not the church that Christ founded, the church that Christ founded is the Catholic Church, and they wanted to enter the Catholic Church, the question of whether they had to be rebaptized was decided by whom? By the Pope. It was referred to him in Rome. So, I mean, there is example after example after example of the early days of the church when these questions were being referred to none other than the Pope, the Bishop of Rome. And Irenaeus himself, the great doctor of the church in the late uh, hundreds, about the year 200 or so, Irenaeus of Lyon, said that this, this was the church, the Bishop of Rome, the successor of Peter, after giving a list of those who had preceded his time and up to his time, he says that they must all be in accord with that. With that, I mean, that, that's the papacy. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it amazes me that Eric Sammons could make a, a gross error like that and actually uh, contradict himself in the process and not see that uh, because he's clearly an intelligent man and a very reasonable and rational man. And you'd have to I think a very good man, you know, wants to do what is right and, and be faithful to Christ. But how could it not occur to him? I just said a few days ago that the synodality uh, bottom-up church is not Catholic, and it's what Francis is trying to introduce into the church as the new faith. And this is not right. And yet I turned around a few days later and say, but Francis's concept of the papacy is the right one. And the church has been off track ever since the Middle Ages, um, because she made of the papacy, uh, uh, gave it too much authority yeah. to the papacy. Yeah. Um, uh, am I missing something here? Do you, does this, you see what I'm saying here? Why this yeah, is a I definitely see what you're saying. I don't know exactly how he would answer that, but I know um, he does, and um, many others do as well. They, they try and make this um, distinction between, uh, you know, official, infallible uh, papal teaching versus unofficial opinions or something. And so a lot of people, um, I mean, even in, in the Novus Ordo Church, will, will, they will acknowledge that, you know, Francis is doing and saying things that are not Catholic. He may, they might even acknowledge that. they say that, that's all unofficial. They say that's unofficial. And, and I know you've made the point before, Father, that says, that's his, that's Francis's official that's, opinion. That's official as far as Francis is concerned. Yeah. But even, it may not be official to them, but it's official to him. But even if, if, you, just, <laughs> if you just followed that out, I mean, if Francis goes through with everything that he's doing, which he, he certainly has been, um, 
and and you know he he creates this new church um i mean are, are novus ordo catholics still going to be following the head of a new church and saying well he did all that unofficially but uh you know none of the, none of that was none I of guess that was whatever they don't like it he says it's, it's unofficial <laughs> um this is like playing some sort of game yeah uh it's like a game they're playing unfortunately yeah um whatever he says that they don't like it doesn't count <laughs> yeah. as far as they're concerned uh, but it counts very much as far as he's concerned. Uh, that's why he says that the traditional Roman rite of mass no longer reflects the true faith, the faith yeah. of the of the church now, his church. Yeah. But I guess that's unofficial. That's unofficial. You know, like, that that's not infallible. That's just his own private opinion. So well, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And the, <laughs> the fact that he he thinks that he decrees that he insists that it be followed. Well, that doesn't count. Yeah. I mean, it it is really. Uh, tragic as far as it's it's kind of uh, uh it's it's kind of like a spiritual prefrontal lobotomy mm-hmm. in terms of just you know uh cauterizing the the the, the rational part of the brain yeah in order to find a way to deal with this yeah without dealing with it yeah. by not dealing with it yeah. and uh there are a lot of people being being deceived and being discouraged by it this is why i get i get unhappy about it when you can tell you know when we're talking about it uh i get very much involved you know into the discussion because i i think it's really really leading people down the primrose path i think it's doing a lot of damage i think we like archbishop vigano did recently uh he's not a man to beat around the bush he's not a man to soft pedal anything or to do the can't we all just get along I'm okay, you're okay. That's not Archbishop Vigano. And what he says, you know, is what he thinks, right? And what he thinks, he says, okay? And he says it in a gentlemanly, but in a very forthright way. So uh, recently he spoke out on that subject, right? Expressing his own personal doubts with regard to Francis's papacy on the basis of the vitium consensus, the lack of consent, or vitiated consent, right? Uh, some have chosen to quasi-respond to that. I haven't yet seen a single honest-to-goodness response to it. And that doesn't surprise me, because, as you know, I've been saying this for years, basically, and uh, not even as forcefully as, as Archbishop um, uh, Vigano. He said it much more forcefully than I did. Uh, but I have made that point over and over again, and no one has acknowledged it. And I have not yet seen an actual acknowledgement and any serious attempt to address the issues raised by Archbishop Vigano on this subject. Are they simply going to ignore it and and just make it go away? Well, that seems to be their way of handling this problem. And uh, there are souls that are are going to be lost because of all this beating around the bush and mealy-mouthing the the very, very serious questions. And the idea of uniting the clans by ignoring the serious questions that divide them right now, that we need to discuss and we need to settle. Um, But these are the people who are preventing us from actually making progress in settling these questions in a thoughtful, reasonable Catholic way. Father, there are so many, I think, who um, maybe uh, might even acknowledge uh, some of these, some of these arguments, some of these uh, these points that are raised by yourself, by by Vigano. Um, but a lot of times, the response, I think, is like, like you mentioned earlier in the program, that uh, well, okay, this might be a legitimate question to raise, but the safer course of action is uh, just to you know assume that that Francis is the Pope and and to follow him and and what we can. But um, how can that possibly be be safe and by any standard whatsoever when he is creating he is unabashedly creating a new church um creating a new religion with new sacraments new works of mercy new a, a new rosary a new mass um everything is new everything is different everything is is ruptured well, Tom, I mean, no how is that right. safe and, and that brings up a very good point because uh Eric Sammons, in his reaction right, to the question of Francis being the Pope, um, uh, brings up the argument uh, made by Bishop um, Schweitzer. Is that right? Not sure. Um, I'm, I'm 
it must be getting the name wrong. I beg your pardon. Bishop uh, Schneider? Schneider, I'm Bishop sorry. Schneider? Yeah. I got Schneider. <laughs> By Bishop Schneider. Thank you. Mm. I knew you'd come up with it. Uh, that uh, of the universal acceptance. So we have universal yeah. acceptance. Yeah. So it doesn't matter whether Francis was elected validly or not. Uh, when he was accepted by the Catholic faithful, then he's the Pope, and that's it. And uh, Eric Simons actually, in his reaction to the question of Francis being the Pope, brings that up. And he does allude to the fact that, that uh, Archbishop Vigano, you know, uh, said that uh, uh, Bishop uh, Schneider's argument is not accurate and, and is not cogent because uh, in history, in fact, at the Great Western Schism, the majority of, of Catholics were deceived and followed the man who ultimately was shown not to be the Pope, not recognized by the Church as the true Pope. Yeah. And Archbishop Vigano said, if the thesis was correct, then that would have meant that everybody should have followed that Pope, and that would have made him the Pope, yeah. you know. Um, but uh, Eric Salmon says, well, no, we're talking about the universality of the Catholic people, and the universality of the Catholic people has, in fact, recognized Francis, and therefore uh, Archbishop Vigano's argument does not hold water, and rather Bishop Schneider's argument does hold water. But again, what you just said is very, very important here. Because at the time of the Great Western Schism, even, <coughs> all three of the claimants in Rome and in Avignon and then in Pisa were all practicing the Catholic faith. Yeah. They were all preaching the Catholic faith, believing the Catholic faith, practicing the Catholic faith, every one of them. And all of the people involved were all practicing the Catholic faith. But in the case of Francis, you have someone who they acknowledge they, they acknowledge is creating a new religion, is re creating a new church. Yeah. <coughs> that puts us on a very different level. Um, Eric Sammons even says that, well, you know, look at uh, Alphonsus Liguori. We're told by the church that the, the opinions, the moral theological opinions expressed by St. Alphonsus Liguori are safe and they can be followed. And so they quote Alphonsus Liguori as saying, that the moral universality of the faithful recognizing a man as Pope, that, that makes him the Pope, okay? He becomes the Pope by that very fact, okay? And they quote <clears throat> Alphonsus Liguori to that effect, okay? But there are two things, again, I think make that, um, if not dishonest, at least borderline <laughs> dishonest. And, and one of them is, is the very fact that at the time of Alphonsus Liguori, a Francis was inconceivable. And, and St. Alphonsus Liguori would never say, I'm sure he would never say, at least I think we have good reason for thinking he would never say, that if a man is recognized by the majority of the Catholic faithful as Pope, and yet he is a heretic, and he's acknowledged by them to be a, a heretic, and acknowledge and introducing a new faith to replace the traditional faith, well, it doesn't matter because if they acknowledge him as the Pope, he's the Pope anyway, <laughs> in spite of all that. I don't, I, that doesn't make any sense. And it wouldn't make any sense to St. Alphonsus Liguori either. So I think they're, they're misquoting him in misinterpreting and misrepresenting the point that he's making. I honestly do. But the other thing is, um, you know, there, there's a second thing and maybe a third thing too. And the second thing is, if you talk about the moral universality of the people who are actually practicing the faith, recognizing Francis, I don't think that's true. There were people who at the beginning were very doubtful of him, questioning him, uh, critical of what he was saying and asking, is this, is this Catholic, what this man is saying? Yeah. So there were a lot of people who were questioning that. So if they just say, well, the moral universality of people accepted him, well, maybe the, the modern press accepted him. Maybe the politicians expressed, you know, the movers and shakers in the world accepted him. But the fact is there was a groundswell of a, a lot of, of Catholic people who had the faith were very uncomfortable with the idea of him being the Pope, and really were not terribly convinced yeah. from the beginning. So that's a second point. And um, I probably uh, forgot the third point anyway, but well, I will remember it. There, but there is a third point that I think is somewhat significant yeah. here as well. Um, when Francis himself uh, you know, describes the role of the papacy, and it's not the Catholic teaching of the papacy. Yeah. Um, that, that, I think, stands quite 
on its own too as an argument uh, in favor of Archbishop uh, Vigano's theory, thesis yeah. here. And Father, in, in regards to that moral universality of, of acceptance, I mean, what what are the what are the guidelines for that? I mean, is there some kind of uh, percentage out there? Um, is there some kind of cutoff where that that no longer applies? Because, I mean, right. it seems like every just about every other article now on any kind of uh, Catholic website or blog or anything has to do with this question of is Francis the Pope? Mm -hmm. I mean, like I I mentioned this last time. I mean, I think even three two or three years ago. I mean, that would have been inconceivable. Um, to, to, you never would have would have seen uh, that that uh, such a I don't know such a swelling of that of that topic. But now, as I say, it seems like almost every other article on every website is dedicated to this topic. I mean, they're having conferences about this. They're having countless interviews. And I mean, like I said last time, I mean, there there are sort of prelates and priests and and uh, so many faithful who are coming out now and saying, well at the very least questioning this. There are many who are even saying, no, he is not the Pope. He cannot be the Pope. Mm -hmm. So where, even if that universal... Well, you know, Archbishop uh, took... Uh, Archbishop, I'm sorry, Vigano, actually did cite this problem. He said, you have your universal consensus theory. And, um, you know, is there a time limit when people can see what he does and hear what he <laughs> says and say, okay, the clock is ticking. We give him so much time before we decide he is or he isn't the Pope. Yeah. I mean, it's absurd, but that's the point. Archbishop Vigano says, how do you apply this whole idea? Um, you know, <clears throat> people acclaim him as a pope because the white smoke went up and he comes out at that address wearing the white robes. And uh, that's the only qualification necessary for his pope. But as soon as he opens his mouth and starts talking, people start questioning. Well, how many questions have to be asked over what period of time before... Um, that doesn't apply, you know, re real realistically anymore. So um, now the, the um, that's that standard can, cannot be applied. I, I, the third point, well, actually, which is now I guess going to be the fourth point. You know, those who um, are questioning the the uh, Great Western Schism and this point that Archbishop uh, took, uh, why do I keep saying Archbishop, <laughs> you know, I'm still tired from all the travels of the weekend. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I, I don't, I don't okay. recover well as yeah. I used to uh, need a day uh, to rest after that. And I don't get it. But anyway, Archbishop, you know, cited the, the example of the uh, great Western system, right? right? And how so, so many, and even the majority of those who, were Catholic, thought of themselves as Catholic, were actually practicing the Catholic faith, recognized a false pope in Avignon, okay? Even saints recognized him. But I wonder if they would be as, as willing to uh, accept what, what else came out of that time. And what else came out of that time was the adage, Papa Dubius, Papa Nullus, okay? And uh, meaning a doubtful pope is no pope at all. If there's a doubt about a man being legitimately the pope, that in practice he shouldn't be recognized. In other words, the doubt has to be removed before he should be acclaimed as the pope and recognized as the pope. And uh, that is an adage that actually came out and has been uh, used and cited in the church, the church's history. As something, uh, as something the church would go by. Uh, a doubtful pope is not pope in, in practice, you know. Because you, you wouldn't be following a doubtful authority and obeying it as though it was the voice of Christ if you had reason to, to actually doubt whether it was, in fact, legitimate authority or not. So the church was saying by that, basically common sense, you know. And, and then, if that's the case, and Eric Sammons, for example, says, well... There are problems about this, but I'm going to come down on this side because it's safer. But he, he's actually acknowledging by saying that, that in his mind, there is a reasonable doubt, but I'm just going to resolve the doubt this way. But the adage, a doubtful pope is no pope, well, how would you apply that then to those who actually see, an honest-to-goodness, reason to question or to doubt, for instance, yeah. his papacy? So, um, you know... The question of, of Francis being the Pope is, is not something that you can resolve and something I can resolve, okay? 
we can have our thoughts on the subject and we're entitled to, to them, and for good reason. As Michael Matt said, it's not our fault, so to speak. Francis is the one who's creating this doubt. Francis is the one who's doing this to everyone. But the fact is, uh, we have to get past all this because we all have to get back to practicing the traditional Catholic faith, attending only the traditional Catholic Mass offered by the traditional, a real traditional Catholic priest who was ordained by a real traditional Catholic bishop in the traditional Catholic rites. We need to, to find our way to practice the traditional Catholic faith and leave this modernist Novus Ordo construct behind. Francis is being honest. He's saying the Synod is simply a continuation of Vatican II. That's the root of all these evils. As Archbishop Vigano pointed out so well. And so we, Archbishop Vigano said we need to bury Vatican II. If we take him at his word, we need to go back to the traditional Mass, traditional sacraments, traditional faith, as was practiced by our Catholic ancestors before us in the Roman Rite. And we have all the records, we have the books, we even have the old movies <laughs> that show all of this being done. You know, we, that has not yet been erased by Francis, although he's trying. <coughs> so that he, Francis, together with the Masons, can erase the very memory of the Church as it was before Vatican II. That's, that's their goal, right? The Masons want to erase the very memory of Christ himself. Um, Francis wants to substitute it with a new Christ, a new concept of Christ. Right? Um, so, in any case, but I know there, there are other questions. Uh, you know, there was one question that a viewer has been asking for quite some time that we cover, and maybe we could talk about that for a few minutes, Tom. I hate to get you off this subject because I know no, you dear. really relish the subject. No. <laughs> <laughs> None of us really relishes the subject, do we? Um, but that has to do with the question of living the single life in the world. Right? Mm -hmm. And a, uh, a viewer has been very patiently uh, prodding us to address that question for a very practical mm -hmm. reason. There are a lot of young adults in the world today <clears throat> who are trying to find God's will for them in the world. What is their vocation? What, what does God want them to do for him in this world? And we know that the standard vocations, as the church understands them and teaches them, and has done so for centuries, is that there are those who are called to the consecrated state, right? Um, <clears throat> by the vows of religion and the becoming religious, or by the ordination, the priesthood. And um, <clears throat> on the other hand, there are those who are called to the married state, and they are, they are called to... Uh, primarily to give life, to bring children into the world and nurture those children and bring them up to adulthood so that they then can pursue their own vocations, okay? And uh, the secondary purpose of their vocation and joining them in man and woman is the mutual support they give to each other and support they give to each other, especially in saving their souls, but also in this life too, the, the comfort and... Uh, and uh, the, uh, you know, the, 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 well, I guess the, the support that they give each other is the best way to put it, because that's how it's worded by the church. And that's their vocation. But there are those who are not called to either the consecrated state or the married state. And the church says they are called to another state of life called the single state. And it's actual, actually a state in life and actual vocation. Um, now, I mean, you know, when, when we come into the world, we all are born with vocation to be a, a son or a daughter, right? A good brother or sister if we have siblings. So these are the vocations we have when we grow up. But uh, the adult vocations that we choose for ourselves are, are what the church generally refers to as the vocations in the strict sense of the word, Okay. Uh, you do not choose the vocation to be a son or a daughter. It's given to you. Uh, being a sibling, it's not your choice of a vocation to be a brother or sister, right? Um, but when you are, that really is your calling at that moment. God is calling you to be the best son and the best daughter, the best brother and the best sister that you can be. Okay, That's your vocation at that moment. 
When the time comes for you then to choose among the vocations of married state and consecrated state and single state, that is what the church refers to really as your vocation in life. And um, there are those who are actually called to be single. They are not called to accept, uh, take upon themselves the responsibilities of married life. There are those who are not called to be consecrated either by virtue of vows and religion or to be ordained. They are meant to live in the world. And it is a vocation because it is a life of service. Uh, All too often, people who um, are not called to be married uh, or called to be ordained or enter religion, um, they think they've missed out and they've been left out. But they actually have an honest-to-goodness vocation from God because the church needs them. Society actually needs them. Um, Not everybody is called to the priesthood. Not everybody is called to a religious life. Not everybody is called to the married life. And uh, the role that these people living the single life are supposed to play is they are really the adjutants. They They are meant to be, in a sense, kind of like the light cavalry, the light cavalry supporting everyone else. Um, they are meant to use their time, their talents, their treasure, and so on, to, uh, to help the church in so many ways um, that, that married people cannot because they have other things that they have to devote themselves to. Uh, married people are generally uh, very much um, committed to their immediate vocations. It doesn't leave them a lot of time <laughs> a lot of resources um, to contribute in many other ways. Their contribution is bringing life into the world and pop- populating the church. That's a big contribution, right? Uh, that is an inestimable contribution in its own right, providing good Catholics for the church and good citizens for the, for the society too. Um, but those who are in the single life actually have a life which is meant to be consecrated to prayer as single people. They don't pray as religious, but they often can, and they often do unite their prayers to the religious in third orders. They also contributed their prayers, the daily rosary, attending Mass, receiving our Lord and Holy Communion. So they are a a, a, a spiritual support of the Church, a considerable spiritual support of the Church. But they also, because of their contacts and involvement in the world, they bring to the church powers and possibilities and uh, and abilities that others don't have to provide, that others can't provide. Um, There are reasons why when the missionaries went out, they went out as priests, (coughs) religious, but they had lay helpers go with them too. And they had laymen and lay brothers go with them. to help them in their missionary efforts. Um, So while it is not really possible to say, yes, become a layman um, who is living the the, uh, unmarried state in the world, and, uh, you know, these are the rules you follow, and this is what your contribution is meant to be. Because the contribution is meant to be so varied and covers such a vast scope, it's basically to be there to help in any way they can with their time, their talents, and as they say, their treasure, to support the church in this way. And this is an indispensable role to give. It's a vocation because people can actually sanctify themselves in this. And actually people are called by God to become saints in that way of life, in the unmarried and unconsecrated uh, way of life. Um, This is the way God has mapped out for them to become great saints, save their souls. Uh, There are graces that are specific to them, to support them. Those who are living in the religious life, they have a vow of of, chastity. Those who are living in in the consecrated life of the priests, have the vow, have the the basically the oath, and the, the vow of celibacy. Okay, those who are living the single life in the world, they don't take a ordinarily take a vow 
or an oath or that, but they are required nonetheless to live a life of great chastity. That takes an enormous amount of grace from God, an enormous amount of virtue for someone to be living in the world and yet to pass through this world in a way that they are unstained and untainted by this world. As St. Paul says, he talks about that, right? He even advises this. You know, people sometimes miss it. That St. Paul actually advises those who are not married not to marry because of the times that were coming, the times of persecution that were coming. He says, you're better off unencumbered at that time. Because when you're married, you're concerned about many things, and you're worried about many things. And he didn't say this, but those attachments can compromise you in your faith and allegiance to Christ. How often does our Lord say, those who love father and mother, sister, brother, and lands for my sin, you know, uh, more than me are not worthy of me. And I've come to turn people against father, mother, sister, and brother. In other words, if they have a choice to make, they have to choose me. So uh, people who uh, are living in the world uh, as, uh, as in the single, single state of life, they have to be extraordinarily virtuous in order to, to succeed in doing that. Living continually in the state of grace, growing continually in the state of grace, but um, St. Paul, as I say, because he saw the looming dark clouds of persecution, uh, said that people were actually would be in a better state in the single state of life because their single-mindedness, their single-minded devotion would be to be faithful to Christ. And they wouldn't have other attachments tugging at them, pulling them this way and that way and perhaps even successfully um, winning, winning them away from our Lord. Um, now, you know, you know this. You know what I'm saying. It's, uh, St. Paul actually does say that. Uh, in our own time, therefore, I think we have to uh, place a certain emphasis, as St. Paul himself did, on this, the dignity and the this the, the 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 special role of the single in the world and the role they have to play going forward that takes nothing away from those who are, who are called to the married state <clears throat> because in the married state yes they do have these attachments but they also must be single-mindedly devotion devoted to Christ too right it doesn't in any way diminish the holiness of the married state it doesn't in any way in exalting or in in uh, speaking well of one of the vocations, it doesn't take away anything from the other vocations, as some might, might say. The vocation to the consecrated state of life is the highest of the vocations. You might say, theoretically, hypothetically, right? But in the practical order, the perfect vocation for you and the highest vocation for you is to be a married man. That is your vocation, and for you, that is the highest vocation. And so it is with me as a priest. Uh, the, the priesthood is for me, my vocation, and that is the vocation for me that God wanted. And I cannot, you know, substitute anything in his place or uh, look at anything to be higher than that for me personally. And for this person who is called to the single state in life, they must say, if, if this is what God wants for me, um, because, at least for today, because I haven't, although they might say, I'd like to be married, I'd like to have a family, I'd like to give life, I'd like to nurture children, I'd like to do all that. But as of this moment, God has not provided for me a person who I find to do, do that with, to pursue that vocation with. So I know that this particular day of my life, God is calling me to be single. And um, for the present, therefore, I have to realize that is my vocation. And that, for me, is the highest vocation of all. And it is the way God wants me to save my soul. And what he wants me to do now is basically roll up my sleeves and, and get busy being at the service of of the rest of his church, those who are married and those who are consecrated, in working with them to 
labor for the salvation of souls, beginning with my own, because it's my first responsibility. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I just wanted to take a few minutes there to talk about the dignity of the single estate, because I think it does tend to get lost. And because St. Paul did emphasize in his day the importance of it, I think we need also to remind people in our own day of the importance of that state in life and that it really is a vocation. Mm-hmm. Well, I think those are very consoling words, hopefully, Father, for some of our viewers. So. Well, I hope encouraging. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you say consoling, and I think people think of the single state as like the consolation prize. <laughs> But that's my point. It's not the consolation prize yeah. for those who didn't get married and for those who aren't, you know, ordained yeah. uh, or vowed in religion. It is actually God's will for you. It's the way, your way to heaven yep. to become a saint and a great saint. Yep. <clears throat> Very good. Well, Father, thanks. Thank you uh, again for everything tonight. I think we covered a lot of ground. Yeah. Got through a lot. So uh, thank you. God bless oh, you. Oh, certainly. Thank you. Yep. Do it again next week. Yes, indeed. Uh, God willing. All right. All right. Well, thank you, Father, and thank you to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.